0: Good morning, Austin Oaks Church. Uh, it is so good to see you today. Um, uh, Sam just said that, that Matt is going to be teaching today. I am not Matt. Um, my name is uh, BJ Ferguson. I'm the executive pastor here. And uh, we are so thankful that you are here. Here at Austin Oaks Church, we are simply about Jesus. And we want to help people meet, know, and follow him. And currently, we're actually going through a series and looking at God's word, and we've been looking into the book of Acts. And and in the series, we're talking about when Jesus ascended into heaven, he empowered people to go into the world and make disciples, and then build the church, the church that that Jesus told us to go build, to, to go in and, and proclaim the gospel and, and baptize others and teach them to obey. And the church sprang up out of that. And so the book of Acts is talking about how that happened and and we have this really unique time uh, in this season where pastor Brandon is on sabbatical and he's he is focusing on his relationship with Jesus and saying that is of utmost importance living out the fact that we are simply about Jesus and in this time we we get to have people that are coming to us from God's church from from around the world we had somebody from from Europe uh James Lauderdale we had somebody uh from Rwanda and Pastor Charles and and now we're going to have somebody f- from Austin that's going to come and share today all the way around up north past near 620 like can you that's basically Oklahoma um uh but but guys this is a special treat uh uh not just for all of us but but for me as well um uh, Matt Blackwell um is uh, a good friend of mine, but we actually met here. Matt was the college pastor here from two thousand and six to two thousand and twelve and during that time, he was my boss and and, and when God called me uh, and God called Matt out of this and went and uh, was actually a campus uh, pastor and an elder at Austin Stone Community Church, where he is the campus pastor at their uh, Northwest congregation right now. And, um, uh, but whenever God called me out of youth ministry, he actually allowed me to go work with Matt at Austin Stone. And and so Matt is a dear brother of mine, but I just wanted to let you guys know a little bit about him. Uh, he, He has three boys. I have three boys. His boys are all like, like about four years ahead of mine. So every mistake he made, I get to fix. So I'm thankful for that. Thank you for messing up so many times, Matt. Um, but, uh, one thing I know about him is he loves his wife, Shannon, and he loves his three boys, Tyler, Carter, and Brody so much. He loves Jesus with all of his heart. But I think what sets Matt apart is his great love for the church, the bride of Christ. In my time in working with Matt, I, I I sensed that, I saw that, I fell in love with that, and it was such an encouragement to me. And today, as, as we look at God's word and hear what God is gonna say through him, um, I believe that we are gonna be challenged and we are gonna fall in love with, with Christ more and we're gonna fall in love with his church more. And that's, that's just who he is and what he's about. And so I'm gonna bring Matt up here and if y'all can just give him a round of applause. And he knows more about the office than anybody I've ever met. So that's one last thing. That's right. (laughs) Thanks, brother.
1: Appreciate it. Well, good morning. Austin Oaks, great to be with y'all this morning. Uh, It's been 10 years since i've gotten to be here on a sunday morning 10 years ago last month so uh a joy to be able to be back with you see some friendly faces who haven't changed a bit uh i feel like i've changed a lot but many of you look exactly as you did 10 years ago so way to go Uh, and i feel like this time thing like covid months are like dog years so 10 years i'm like what does that even mean anymore i don't even know uh but we are going to open the word together this morning being a very familiar passage not in the book of Acts, actually in the book of First Samuel. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn all the way back to the Old Testament in First Samuel there. And we're going to be looking at a passage, and here's my hope. My hope is for those of us, and I say us purposefully, those of us in the room, man, we come in a little overburdened, uh, maybe a little overwhelmed, a little overworked, a little underpaid, a little anxious, a little fearful. The last couple of years have created some, some chaos in the world, but if we're honest, probably some chaos in our own souls uh, and maybe some uh, fragility to our faith. Uh, we're here. We're here on a Sunday morning, and we're singing and we're opening the Word. But if we're honest, there's this sort of uh, discontent or disconnection with us and the Lord. And I love that Pastor Brandon has gotten to go, and that you've given him that blessing to go and spend time with Jesus. And some of us are like, "That sounds great." Four months ago, hang out and love Jesus, and 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 I could use some of that because we all feel sort of frazzled in our faith. And so the passage today is very familiar to us, maybe one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. And so I wanted to test that theory to see if this was true. So I put it into my Google machine uh, to find out, is this theory true? And so I I did a couple of Google searches to find out what are the most popular Bible stories. And you can take your guess. So these were just random that I put in. I put in uh, Jesus heals a leper. And I want to see how many hits that gets. It gets 219,000 Google hits. Second one I put in, well, what about Jesus feeding the 5,000? Anybody want to venture a guess? It's more than 200,000. 2.4 million. So we're getting closer. What about Noah's Ark? Everybody knows Noah's Ark. 4.8 million Google hits. Jesus walks on water. That's a big one right? Kanye even saying about that. Jesus walks on what? 18 million hits. And in today's passage, in David and Goliath, 33.7 million hits. So this is a well-known story in our culture. But what in the world does it even mean? I think we might know what we think it means. We're like, oh, David and Goliath. I heard about that in Sunday school. I taught about that in Sunday school. That's about being really brave. And I'm like, Yes. And? Well, you're like, okay, I I got you, pastor. You're going to do this spiritual juke on me. Uh, I know that's not just about being brave. It's about faith. So David and Goliath is really about just faithfulness. And I'm like, yes, and it's not just about bravery, although it is, it's not just about faithfulness, although it is. It's about a bravery that's built on something and a faithfulness in someone. And as we grow in that, my hope for us isn't just go be more like David, uh, but as we unpack this, what we'll see is that it's not just the the quality or the quantity of bravery or faithfulness, but it is the object of David's faithfulness that I want to highlight. So let's look at this. We won't be able to read this whole uh, chapter, so if you've got a favorite part of the story that we just don't get to, um, my apologies, but it's a lot of text in an entire chapter in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let me start in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Socoh, which belongs to Judah. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up uh, in line of battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley in between them. So here's the scene, right? Uh, if the if this was a movie, the opening credits would finish, and you see two uh, armies, uh, one on each hill and a valley in between. On this side is the Philistine army. And the Philistines are notoriously the arch rivals of God's people in Israel. They are a wicked and cruel people, and they're on one hill. And then there's this valley, and then up on the other hill is Israel, the people of God. The people who have been brought out by God and given this place. So not only is it the people of God, but it tells us it's in Judah, which means it's the place of God. So the people of God, in the place of God, fighting for uh, their, uh, their place with God, except there's a problem. Uh, there's a big, big problem in that there's a very real threat from a very loud mouth, and it creates fear and chaos and disunity among God's people. Watch this, verse 3. And there came out from the camp of Philistine, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of a coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. Okay, now, when you're reading through Hebrew literature, there's... there's there's not a lot of times that you get to double click down on this type of, uh, of detail. There's a lot of detail, a lot of measurements that we see here. Uh, the, the hope, I think, of the author is to say Goliath was huge. Goliath was strong. Goliath had the, 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 the latest and greatest in weaponry. He was like Tony Stark, but like tall. Uh, And he comes out, and even his name, Goliath, means magnificent. He's from Gath, a major metropolitan city. He stands six cubits in a span, and there's all sorts of measurements on this. We know this, that he was at least probably eight feet tall, if not taller. So he was massive. He had a bronze helmet. Armor that weighed 125 pounds, a spear that weighed 15 pounds, and maybe the most telling of all of the details is this, that Goliath is referred to as the champion. Now the word champion literally means in Hebrew, the man in between. So you've got the Philistines, you've got the valley, you've got Israel, and in the middle of the valley you've got Goliath, the man in between, standing in between the two armies. Uh, and he is going to uh, cause uh, a, a scene here and saying, essentially, if I win, we win. If I lose, we lose. He's identifying with his team. Now, we get that. So I went to a little, um, little college in the Bryan College Station area, gigum And um, uh, when the Aggies win on any given Saturday, I say, we won. As if I had anything to do with it. Uh, If the Aggies lose on any given Sunday, it's they lost, right? It's not we lost, it's we won. And so there's this sort of, we get this sort of identification with uh, victory. We're like, it's our victory, it's their loss. And so what we see is that uh, Goliath is about to identify with that reality. Watch this in verse 8. It says, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? So choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So Goliath steps forth as the champion, as the man in between, and identifies himself and ties his victory to his people's victory. He not only fights uh, um, for the Philistines, but he fights as the Philistines. So what goes with Goliath goes with his people. And he's calling for another champion of Israel to step down and to say, don't just fight for Israel, but as Israel. Your victory will be their victory. Your defeat will be their defeat. And this happens, as we'll see, 40 days in a row. Twice a day. Goliath comes out as the champion, as the man in between and twice a day, yells up to the Israelites, uh, just show me somebody. Is anybody willing to fight? Can you imagine sort of the the psychological warfare that goes on day after day for six weeks nearly? That's 80 times that the people, that the soldiers had to just endure uh, this defying mockery from this giant. It's all they could talk about. It's all they could hear were the voices Uh, In their heads were Goliath's words. All they could see was the eight-foot giant. Every conversation around the campfire was Goliath. Every dream at night and every waking moment, it was Goliath. It's all they could hear. It's all they could think about. I call it goliath It was this sort of loss of courage. It says they were dismayed, filled with fear, incapacitated, The entire army, the entire nation was at a standstill because of fear, because of terror, incapacitated an entire nation. Now, you may be reading this story in 1 Samuel 17 and go, there seems to be an awkward absence in a Bible story. And you'd be right, because up until this point, there's no mention of God. God's not anywhere in the story. We know Goliath, We know how much his spear weighs. We know where they are. We know uh, what he says. We know how often he says it. We know that there's fear. We don't know anything about what God thinks about this. And so the author is sort of setting up this contrast. And we set up Goliath. And now verse 12, look what happens. Now David. And so when when we read this section, here's what I'd like for you to do is, is think about Goliath, magnificent from Gath, a major metropolitan city, a giant, a champion. And now the author is going to show us another person in the story, and his name is David. Now, watch how David is described. Now, David was the son of uh, an Ephratite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to his son David... Take for your brothers an epaph of parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander. Okay. How is David described? Look how little David is. Not from a big city. He's from a no-name town called Bethlehem. He wasn't the oldest. He's the youngest. He wasn't a soldier. He was a shepherd we see that, uh, that he wasn't chosen to go fight in the battle, but uh, David was the original kind of the OG Uber Eats where he's bringing bread and cheese. Like that, it just feels so uh, mundane. Like David, your, your, your real brothers, the old brothers, the brave brothers, the, the ones that everybody knows about, they're fighting, would you bring them some bread and some cheese? It feels so small. So we compare David with Goliath as we see this. Goliath is important. David's insignificant. Goliath was a a soldier. David was a shepherd. Goliath carried a a 15-pound spear. David carries a loaf of bread. Goliath is unmissable at eight feet tall. David was an afterthought of his own father. Goliath feared no one. But David fears God. And that's going to make all the difference. So David hears the words of Goliath. He hears the mockery. The 80th time that, that the soldiers have heard it, the first time that David hears it in verse 26, look at how David responds Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The first time that David speaks in the Bible. These are the first words, these verses right here are the first words uh, of David recorded for us in the Bible and the first time, 26 verses into one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the first time God is mentioned. No theology up until this point, until David shows up on the scene. There's plenty of fear, there's plenty of worry, there's plenty of dismay, there's plenty of, of Goliath phobia, but no God until David shows up. And says, who is this guy? And so watch what he does. He goes to the king, verse 33. And Saul, the king, said to David, you're not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, he took the lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So why did David have faith? to fight. David said, this guy defied the armies of the living God. So David was trusting in God's victory in this moment. See, because God had showed up in these smaller moments all through David's life, all through these smaller occasions. He's like, man, back on the farm, I was fighting lions, I was fighting bears, which by the way, is one crazy farm. I don't know what kind of farm that is, but I think of like chickens and cows, not lions and bears. Uh, But David is like, man, back on the farm, I was protecting the sheep and I was killing lions and bears when no one was watching. When there's just one sheep in the mouth of a lion, I went to battle. When there was no Twitter followers, there was nobody paying any attention, God was faithful even in those moments when there was no audience, when there was no one watching, when when it seemed like such a small occasion. I had a hundred sheep and one got eaten, and so I would leave the 99, I would go after the one, and I would rescue it. Now, here's here's why one of the points I think that just is jumping out from the text for me is I wonder how often we... um, we think, okay, when, it, when it's serious, when my faith, when I get the phone call, when I get the diagnosis, when, when it's really serious, then I'll be serious about my faith. That's when it will kind of kick in. But I'm busy, uh, uh, there's a lot to do, work is busy, and so I'm sort of plodding along. And we make this mistake that when the issue is big, our faith will rise to meet the issue. But when the issues are small, so is our faith. Not so with David. David is like, even in the small things, I'm trusting God. I'm seeing God at work when no one's paying attention. I'm seeing God at work when it's not an entire nation, just one sheep. See, there's no no way to to know that we're going to step into faithfulness when things get crazy, when we're not stepping into faithfulness when things are simple. What what does your rhythm of just trusting the Lord look like? Open in the Word, Spending time in prayer, being faithful and diligent to share your faith and to trust in the Lord when no one's watching. We see that in young David. There's this funny little scene that happens next in verse 38 where where Saul, who should have been the one to go fight... We were told in the scriptures that Saul was taller than all of Israel. So Saul should have been the champion, but this young guy who's carrying bread and cheese says, I'll fight. And so Saul says, okay, uh, here's my armor. In verse 38 through 40, he puts his armor on young David and it's too big and it's clunking around. It's like when my kids were little, uh, they would put my running shoes on and they would kind of pretend like they're running, but they would always fall down. And uh, why? Because the shoes weren't designed for them. They were grown-up shoes and this is grown-up armor and he's put on to David and he's clunking around and he said, I can't do this. So he goes down to the stream and he grabs five smooth stones somewhere between the size of a racquetball and a baseball and he puts them into his pouch and he had done this many times. A, A warrior who had a sling and a rock could sling those rocks somewhere between 100 and 150 miles per hour. That's really fast. If you've ever played baseball, uh, I went to the batting cages and, uh, and, and the, the, the ones coming out, I'm like, oh, I could hit these. You know, it was like 65 miles an hour. And then I went up to the 80 mile an hour and I'm like, oh my word. And this is a uh, hundred miles an hour. This rock could easily dent and kill. And so he grabs it and he runs onto the battlefield. Now, the scene is so crazy. This is not the soldier you'd expect it's just a shepherd it's not the person you would expect he just showed up it's not the armor you would expect he's got no armor it's not even the weapons you would expect you would think he would at least have a sword or a spear and all he has is rocks and I think the next verses really capture the the meaning of all of the story of David and Goliath verses 45 to 47 David runs onto the field look at what he says and then David said to the Philistine You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth will know that there's a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord says, not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give it into our hands. What motivated David? What caused him to overcome his identity issues of being a bread and cheese deliverer? What overcame his desire to stand on the sidelines when everybody else was? That all of Israel might know God. He hears the defiance of the name of God and he says that's worth fighting for. Six times in David's short speech, he references the Lord. It's the Lord's army, the Lord's fight, the Lord's strength, the Lord's glory. He's always speaking about the glory of God. What is going to be done is that God's name will be made great. What offended David was that God's name was being trampled upon. What motivated David was to say no more, no more. I don't know who this guy is, but he's got to go down. And he goes to fight without armor, without sword, with rocks. This cheese deliverer, this shepherd goes to battle and he is offended by the name of God being trampled upon. Now this is a little aside, so I'll come out from the pulpit because we live in a very offendable culture. So I want to speak to two groups that may find themselves in the room today. There's those of us who find ourselves easily offendable, very easily offendable. You're like, well, that's not me. Uh, Let me just give you some frameworks by which to judge if this is you. Uh, You honk your horn a lot. You reply to social media posts daily and you always ask for the manager. If that's you, you're like check, check and check. You're very easily offendable. And I'm just saying it's not bad, but just what is worth fighting? Do you ever get upset that the name of the Lord our God is being trampled upon or that your food is late? Are those the same level of offense? And if so, I think our priorities might just be mixed up. But then there's this other group in the room. They're like, Aha, get them, pastor. Well, there's this other group in the room that we're not offended by anything. We're so cool, we're so calm, nothing bothers us, but there's this sort of bubbling cynicism. This bubbling cynicism that burns inside of us that when the name of the Lord our God is trampled upon, we, we step back too. And so what is it that offends you? What offends young David was that who does this guy think he is? The glory of God is worth a fight. One of my favorite movies, it's an oldie. And when I say oldie, I mean like 1946 oldie. Uh, it comes out uh, on your, on your uh, downloadable of choice, uh, streaming services, it's called It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, there's a scene, that's a very forgettable scene, but one that sort of always taps on me. Young George, he's maybe 12 years old. He needs his dad's advice. And so he runs into his dad's office, he bursts into the office, has a question for his dad and and his dad is there with Potter. Potter is the grumpy old wealthiest man, most powerful man in town. And he's having this heated business meeting with George's father. Uh, And in the midst of that meeting, Potter says to George's dad, you're a miserable failure. And what does George do? George bows up, 12 years old. He's about to go to battle with Potter, the most powerful man in town. He says, he's not a miserable failure. He's bigger than you. He's bigger than this town. And he pushes Mr. Potter and he's quickly shuffled out the door. A forgettable scene, but one that that always I I remember because it sort of sparks this. There's something to fight for when when the honor of the father is at stake. And he says, "I'll, I'll go to battle for them. I'm not going to fight for everything, but I'm going to care about something. What is it that we care deeply about? So David runs on to the field, verse 49, and David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. He fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There's no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Kind of a gruesome scene. What in the world is the author doing? We know that the author is highlighting something. Because we've seen the author, it's called repetition. When there's repetition in the scripture, it's the author's version. It's the Hebrew writing version of our emojis or exclamation points. They had no emojis in the Hebrew language, nor did they have exclamation points. So when something is repeated, we're like, oh, this should be paid attention to. Over and over, we're talking about the weapons that that, that David had and didn't have. He didn't have a sword. There was no sword in David's hand. So he takes the sword that for 80 days had caused fear. He takes the sword that was designed to enslave Israel. He takes the very sword that was raised up to defy the armies of the living God. And with that very sword cuts off the enemy. Perhaps that's what Isaiah meant when he says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. So that's the story. That's David and Goliath. What in the world does it mean? What do we do with that? Is it the bigger they are, the harder they fall? Is it, I wanna be more like David and, and attack the problems in my life? I hope so, but I think, that it's, I think it's more than that. Because I can remember uh, in high school, I played in a 6A high school defensive end on the football team. And I know you look at me and you're like, of course you did. You're huge. Uh, like you probably played against BJ. Like you probably held your own against him because of the size and strength that I can tell you have. Uh, but uh, I, did, I, I did play. I was a five foot seven, 140 pound holding dumbbells on the scale defensive end at a large high school in Dallas. And I remember uh, on the bus driving up to our arch rival's and I remember they were already out on the field. And I looked and I saw the number of the guy that I was going to have to go to war with because we'd been watching film all week. And he's probably, I don't know, six foot three, 270 pounds. He was a massive offensive tackle. Uh, and I remember this sort of fear like, oh my gosh, I'm having to go against Shaq for the next f- f- full hours. And I can't do this, but I remember the preacher and he told me the story of David and Goliath. David was ready. I'm ready. David was small. I'm small. He was the youngest of three, uh, or youngest of the brothers. I'm the youngest of the brothers. I can do it. I can be like David and overcome my obstacles. The bigger they are, the harder they fall, and the ball got snapped, and then so did I. Uh, it did not go well. For four quarters, uh, this guy went on to play offensive tackle at TCU, and my football career was coming to a painful end very quickly. And I was like, what about all that David and Goliath stuff? What about all that bigger they are, the harder they fall? I have faith that I can overcome this obstacle, and I got crushed. And here's what happens. When When we misunderstand texts like this, we can come up against major issues in our life. And when they don't go our way, we can say, well, God, you said, David and Goliath, where are you? What are you doing? Have you forgotten us? That's why I think the, the, the value in studying a text like this is recognizing the story of David and Goliath is about what all the Bible is about. That the battle belongs to the Lord. That we have a tremendous issue, we have a tremendous need, but we have a tremendous God. We have a great uh, strength in our weakness. Because here's the deal: when I read this story, I want to be David. I don't know about you. I'm like, I want to be like David. But if I'm quite honest, I'm much more like the soldiers. I'm much more in back on the back, milling around, concerned with my fears, all my thoughts, all my conversations all my dreams when I wake up in the morning I'm worried I'm dismayed I'm filled with fear I I hear the voice out there of the enemy and I start to believe it I start to believe the promises of the enemy over the promises of my own God I I want to be David but I'm the soldiers I'm exhausted I'm dismayed I'm beat down and I need a hero I need a champion I need a man in between. And here's the good news is that our only hope is that church, we have one. We have a champion, not not, not the bread carrier from Bethlehem, but the bread of life who was born from Bethlehem. The one who is our hope, who is our champion, who is the man in between. Not just between Israel and the Philistines, the man between life and death, between sin and righteousness, between heaven and hell. Jesus stands in the gap. And guess what, church? He's victorious. He rose from the grave. And his victory is imputed to us. He didn't just come and, 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 and die on the cross for us, but as us. And his victory is our victory. So my hope for you isn't to, hey, go be more like David, Trust me, if you read the story of David and you take away, I wanna be more like David from the sermon this morning, I've done done you a disservice because David gets into some stuff. David is an adulterer, he's a polygamist, he's an accessory to murder. My my goal for you isn't to say, just go be more like David. I want you to remember David's bravery. I want you to remember David's uh, honor impulse, but I want you to fix your eyes on the real champion, on Jesus himself. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. You remember that uh, that great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, where the author of Hebrews is saying, remember Abraham, remember Moses, remember David, but fix your eyes on Jesus. And you know what he says after that? He says this, the founder and perfecter of your faith. That word "founder" in the Greek uh, is is this idea of champion of this man in between the one who started your faith. It's Jesus. The one who ends your faith. It's Jesus. The one who is the one in between. It's Jesus. And so, with with the challenges, and and I started this sermon saying, I want to talk to those who are overwhelmed, who are overburdened, who are tired, who are anxious, who are depressed, who are fearful, who got the diagnosis. And and I'm guessing in a room this size, there's some of you even this morning that you're like, yeah, that's, and that's where I'm at. My hope for you this morning is that you see that the victory of Jesus is victory over sin. The sin that has so easily entangled you. You have victory in Jesus. Jesus wins. The, the, The weight that you are feeling, the depression and the anxiety, it's not just go fight it. It's Jesus has already overcome it. And that's the hope that we have is to fix our eyes on him. Man, cancer, I hate it. I hate it. Jesus overcomes. He is the victor over life and death itself. And so church, my hope for us is that we would say, I wanna fix my eyes on the true champion, on Jesus himself. He was weak, just like David. Jesus came in weakness too. Just like David, who who defeated not with the weapons you would expect, Jesus didn't come with a conquering military, but he came and humbled himself and took the form of a very servant. Just as David fought for Israel as Israel, Jesus fights for his church as a human. David delivered Israel at the risk of his life, but more than that, Jesus at the cost of his life. So, church, whatever it's you're facing, it, you're like, man, it's too big for me. It, it might be, but it's not too big for God. His victory is imputed to you. To so live in that, and listen to the words of Hebrews chapter twelve, that we not grow faint-hearted. Hebrews chapter twelve, verse one, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, church, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Father, thank you for these friends. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the bravery and the faith that you gave to David. But God, ultimately, thank you that you gave us your son, Jesus, the real champion, the one who stands in between. And so, Lord, where we feel overwhelmed, overburdened, we feel like we're losing at every turn. God, remind us of the imputed victory of Jesus, that while our sins have entangled us, that while we are listening to the voice of the enemy, God, would you even use this morning to let scales fall from eyes, let ears be open and hearts be open and minds be reminded that we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, we have a victory that lasts. And even if we feel like we're trudging along, oh Lord, you will not leave us. You'll not forsake us. You'll see us home. You'll follow us in and we'll rejoice anew and afresh when we get to glory. Father, we love you. We thank you. May you receive the praises of your people now as we respond to you in worship. In Christ's name, amen.